uh, mine happened over 25 years ago, and it still impacts me to this day. I certainly wouldn't hesitate to use the term trauma. These docs have been traumatized. Welcome back to these final episodes of the first season of Doctors and Litigation, the L Word, an audio curriculum on the practical and psychological preparation required for physicians facing malpractice litigation. I am Dr. Gita Pensa, and as I promised a while back, we are going to discuss life after litigation. I'm dividing this into two parts, and in the first, we're going to talk about the lasting effects that litigation can have long after the end of a lawsuit. And in part two, I'm going to tell you how I have come to truly believe that these trajectories can be changed, both for us as individuals and for medicine as a culture. And I will include the rest of my own personal story, which, as you recall, involved 12 years in a high stakes, big money lawsuit, two lengthy jury trials, and a whole host of other adventures I hope you'll indulge me in hearing about, including a ballroom dance competition. These doctors go out there and they train for 12 weeks and they match with professional dancers and they basically do dancing with the doctors instead of dancing with the stars. It definitely was not a period of time I was able to figuratively dance my way through, But we'll talk about how, finally, learning about tort law and legal performance techniques and opening myself up to things like cognitive neuroscience, behavioral therapy, coaching, resilience training, how I began to recover from the effects of litigation stress and burnout, and how that made me a more effective defendant, as well as a more fulfilled physician and, overall, a happier human being. These are not things that I had thought were possible when I was first named. And so I ask you to just accept that there might be possibilities that you have not thought of yet. So let's get back to talking about common experiences of physicians in the aftermath of litigation. The very first voice you heard in this episode was Tracy Sanson, MD, who is an emergency physician, a speaker, and a consultant, and she was sued over 25 years ago and knows well the toll that litigation stress can have long after the suit itself is over. Um, I was signing out to a colleague one day and said, um, they, they're back from their CTA. I just don't have the results yet. And he said, do you think everybody has a PE? And I wanted to say, yeah, I do, you know, because that I don't know what my patient died of. I presume it was a PE. And so it, it even changes the way I see patients or at least see that type of uh, clinical presentation. This is a very, very common and completely normal behavior after you're sued. Dr. Sanson gained perspective on her heightened vigilance, but as we've said over and over during this podcast, and I guess I should say at this point, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, you should really go back and listen to these in order. But litigation stress is a reasonable reaction to a significant stressor. And if you have been traumatized by an event, and we'll get back to whether or not we can call this true trauma, but I believe we can. If you've been traumatized by an event, your brain wants to protect you. 
in situations similar to when you were first endangered. This is actually normal brain function. Understanding that and having some awareness of your behavior is actually the first step in improving on it. I tried to figure out what can I do about this. I couldn't go around being worried about every chest pain that I saw because that's one of the things you'll find we do as physicians. We then over-document or we over-test or you will find people that avoid that type of clinical situation if it was a an intubation that didn't go well or a child that didn't do well. We can't do that. As Dr. Sanson alluded to, if you had an adverse event occur during something procedural, a surgical complication, a delivery gone wrong, an airway gone to hell, when you are placed in that situation again, it is very common to experience anxiety and distress. And this can manifest in a whole lot of ways, none of which are generally conducive to accomplishing the procedure at hand. When I work with physicians, this is among the top difficulties they express about returning to practice. I think those types of events can, can result in PTSD for people. That's Dr. Stacia Dearman, who is a physician, coach, and speaker, and founder of ThrivePhysician.com. Unless we truly process our anger, our fear, and our anxiety around that, it will make it very hard to continue to work in medicine. We're going to delve more into how that processing might get done in part two. But there's another expert I'd like to reintroduce you to. If you've been listening along to the other podcasts, you will have recognized that the second voice you heard in the opening of this podcast was that of Marge Passioni, PhD, a highly experienced psychologist who works often with physicians in litigation. Marge has significant expertise in caring for patients with trauma, and she includes physicians with significant litigation stress and who are in the aftermath of serious adverse events to be in this category. As we've been discussing, as we've been going along, many have likened the aftermath of litigation to PTSD. Some docs will meet the clinical criteria for a PTSD diagnosis, others won't. But either way, the experience of each doc will vary. And as with Many dangerous events, uh, it's natural to have some symptoms of trauma or even feel very detached from the experience as though you're observing things rather than experiencing them. So you can have very significant symptoms or you can have this sense of numbness. Uh, likely the majority of docs will experience some trauma related symptoms. So these symptoms uh, will run the gamut from what we call arousal symptoms uh, such as difficulty concentrating, uh, feeling tense, uh, as you were describing, uh, an inability to relax, feeling on edge, sleep disturbances, emotional outbursts. I had just been saying to Marge that it took what felt like forever for me to feel less on edge and just to relax and sleep again after my lawsuit was over. Uh, and then there were mood symptoms, such as uh, distorted thoughts about the malpractice event or feelings of social isolation, ongoing feelings of fear, uh, anger, guilt, uh, and a big one in the medical culture, shame. Very, very much part of the whole medical culture.
we have talked a lot about shame in this series, and I hope it's starting to dawn on you that shame is, just as Marge said, very, very much part of the whole medical culture. Not just litigation, but the whole medical culture. It's baked into how we learn, how we train. It's in how we talk about error, small or large. In a culture in which there is only one acceptable way to be, which is perfect, but a million ways to screw up, shame is the language we internalize. Other professional sectors might talk about failing fast or how acceptance of failure is part of a growth mindset, but no, 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 not us. Failure and error are in general severely punishable and we swim every day in a sea of perfectionism, except that at one point or another, most of us feel like we might be drowning. As an aside, if you're interested in the role of shame in medicine and want to learn more, I invite you to search for the award-winning podcast series, Shame in Medicine, The Lost Forest, which was created by the Nocturnus podcast team and the Shame in Medicine project from the University of Exeter. I'll link to it in the show notes. There are 10 episodes, one of which is about litigation and I'm featured in, and they use the stories from over 200 healthcare workers in the United States and the UK to explore how shame manifests in medical culture. But back to what I was saying. We've talked a lot about why shame runs rampant during litigation, but believe it or not, it just keeps going and going for a lot of us after it's over. Not only do we have the voices reminding us that we screwed up, or if you didn't, that any given day could just bring another patient who wants to sue, or there might be poor documentation that gets you into some sort of trouble, or another way that you just wind up in this mess all over again. And now there's shame also because you just can't get back on that horse like nothing happened. What is wrong with you? Just shake it off. So maybe you do what a lot of doctors do, which is put on your facade, go to work, try to suppress those feelings, hoping that they don't resurface. You do your tasks, you see your patients, you answer your phone calls, you do your charts. But those feelings or those trauma symptoms or those uncertainties about whether you really can or should be doing this job every day, they can't stay down forever. You can try to keep them submerged. Some make the analogy of them being like a beach ball underwater, but sooner or later, they are going to come shooting back out, sometimes with force and surprise, and sometimes in a way over which you feel like you have no control. The incident seems to have faded, but obviously it's right there um, because every now and then I'm rem reminded this last week, I woke up in a cold sweat uh, when a patient's father became threatening because I hadn't done enough for him, etc. So obviously, it's not gone away. You might recognize that voice as the doctor who spoke about his trauma and suicidality in the opening of the episode on litigation stress and relationships. For the most part, he's feeling much better. But this event takes place about 10 years after his lawsuit. 
We'll hear more about what he found helpful in part two. There are people who come out of litigation and struggle. Here's Dr. Dearman again. Limp along for a very long time. There are people who leave clinical medicine altogether or leave a portion of their clinical practice. For example, it's a very common phenomenon for an obstetrician to leave behind the OB part of their practice and focus exclusively on gynecology. I think that's a very common event. I personally really had to work very hard to recover after my experience of an unexpected outcome in litigation. And I think, you know, it might be tempting for people to think that if you go to trial and the verdict is in your favor, you would leave that courtroom dancing and singing hooray and hallelujah, but that is really, that really was not my experience. Our very first problem is the refusal to see that what we have been through is difficult and was traumatic and actually merits a period of processing and questioning and readjustment. We know the numbers about litigation, so why don't we see anyone else struggling in the aftermath like we are? But shame is what keeps us from discussing this openly, and our silence perpetuates this notion that all of this should be no big deal if you're a strong doctor, and if you find it difficult, the problem is you. And if you are not expecting it to be difficult, and why would you? Because nobody ever talks about it. Then you might be blindsided by your own reactions and your own behaviors. Remember Dr. M from our first episode on experts and test liars? When he was completely dropped from his case, one would have expected him to have shouted hooray and hallelujah and moved on. But here's an excerpt to remind you of what happened instead. I spent the, you know, the, the several days after the trial, I, you know, I just, just, um, we have a little sunroom in our just off our kitchen, and I had uh, decided to try to redo the floor. And so I literally spent three days just just laying down tile, pulling it up again, laying it down, pulling it up, laying it down, pulling it up for for three days and three nights. You know, I didn't sleep, I didn't eat, I didn't bathe. <laughs> I just spent three days and three nights just just you know laying tile and grout and then and then just saying no it's not it's not right it's not perfect I got and I pulled it up and and told finally my wife my wife uh saw what was happening and said I, I gotta get you out of here and so she uh rented a beach house and and took me and the kids and out to the beach and just to get away from it all and we we spent a week at the beach and it was the best thing she could have done because by the time I got back at least I was able to you know begin to to interact with them again the expectation that we should be able to shrug this off, that this is no big deal, is not a realistic expectation. When we deny that we are being affected, when we believe we should be able to just pretend this isn't happening and we don't address it, our denial and our avoidance began eventually to work against us and block us from being able to move through the experience and incorporate it into who we are going forward. Shaming ourselves for feeling the things we feel is a form of self-invalidation. 
Now, I do recognize that many physicians bristle at talk like this, and I certainly once did, but if you're ready to delve a little bit into the world of behavioral therapy, let me offer you this. Invalidating your own feelings and experiences can have a number of negative consequences because your brain knows you're trying to fool yourself. You essentially are telling your brain that your emotions are not valid or important, and your brain, frankly, begs to differ. And that resulting emotional suppression or bottling up that happens can lead to emotional numbness, increased anxiety, physical symptoms, unpredictable outbursts, and at the other end, a numbing of all of your emotions and withdrawal and detachment. So our goal is not to avoid or suppress these emotions. Denial, avoidance, repression, suppression are pretty much the way doctors are trained to deal with the hard stuff, but it comes at a cost. So you might be in eye-rolling mode right now. I think that the person I was after my first trial would probably be too, because this stuff is for other people. I am not other people. Other people might need this. Maybe even other doctors, but I don't know them. But I am a good doctor who normally knows how to handle their stuff. And yeah, all I really want is for you to tell me how not to feel this way. Or help me figure out how to get out of this profession so that I never have to feel this again. I get it. I get all of it. Because I've been there. And to me, the prospect of having to quote-unquote process this meant that I had to start dismantling habits of thinking and parts of myself that I had worked quite hard to build up, thank you very much. What would happen if I let that happen? But as I'll talk about in part two, I realized eventually that there was a lot of good stuff on the other side of that discomfort. And trust me, it was a long time before I was all in. But just surrendering a little bit to this notion that maybe there was another way to think about these things, that was the tipping point. And it gave me the insight required to see how it was that I ended up where I was and why so many of us end up in the same place. And that maybe we in medicine might benefit from approaching this differently. So let's recap. The return to life after litigation can be pretty complex. There's the relief of the ride finally being over, and yet somehow it doesn't really feel over. There's the desire to feel, quote, like yourself again, whatever that might mean for you. And yet there are lingering feelings of disillusionment, loss of meaning in your career, overall depression and anxiety, hypervigilance, depersonalization, you might have arousal symptoms, detachment, or frank PTSD symptoms. You might have thoughts about the process that other people may say to you are distorted, but really feel true and believable to you. This might manifest in behaviors like over-documenting, or checking and rechecking and hypervigilance. You might have difficulty working with trainees or students. You might be prone to over-testing just because you're afraid of missing anything. Or you could have analysis paralysis, a lot of trouble decision-making, or freezing with the inability to take action in a critical moment. Avoidance is very common, not seeing certain disorders or types of patients because they're similar to what you were sued for. 
Some people have trouble with emotional outbursts with even minor triggers or a low frustration tolerance. Withdrawal and isolation can still be a problem. And on the other side of that coin is being stuck in rumination, just not being able to get thoughts and fears about litigation and what it means about you out of your head. And all of this can be compounded by self-judgment and self-invalidation. The feeling that you should not be feeling like this and it should be easier for you to just get back on the horse. You tell yourself to snap out of it, but somehow you just can't. And so that self-judgment and shame and disgust just accelerate. But maybe as you've been listening along to these podcasts, some other thoughts have begun to take hold. Maybe you've begun to put it all together, to look at the problem of litigation stress in totality, starting with the way physicians are trained to think and to self-sacrifice and to believe that they must never make so much as a misstep in a world that demands perfection, even if we operate in gray zones and with lots of limitations every day. And when we consider how we're steeped in a culture where seeking help is considered weak or potentially even dangerous, and the fact that we don't understand at all the realities of litigation and legal culture or get any training on how to conduct ourselves or even think about this process until we are a deer in litigation headlights, and that in many ways our legal system is designed in such a way that it exploits both the naivete and the distress of the physician, maybe when you put all of that together, some of this starts to make sense. And maybe you start to realize that the problem isn't really you. You were forced into a high-stakes situation with no practical or psychological training, no support, and a belief that everything about you rides on the outcome. And the outcome is determined by people who do not understand medicine. What did you think was going to happen? No, seriously, what do you think would happen? Of course that's what happens. And do you think it's all going to turn off like a light when the process ends? Probably not. If you understand where the difficulty is coming from and actually treat yourself with compassion rather than self-judgment, you now open yourself up to look for solutions. And the good news is, you are already very good at complex problem solving. The thing that we're not so into is turning that skill inward and accepting that when we do, things might get messy. In part two, I hope to tell you a little bit more about the rest of my own story, going through my second trial in 2018, what I've been up to since launching this project in 2019, and where I hope we can go together after this. Thanks for sticking with me. Until next time.